Impact over intentions. A faculty member told me I was brave for admitting I was the first in my family to go to college. I don't understand Brief why and common. I spent my whole life having to ask permission to celebrate my holidays. As a college student, I often felt that I needed to justify how religious I was in order to have the luxury to have the day off on my major holidays, something that no one is expected to do for majority group holidays. Invisible like and nebulous. When the moving truck showed up at our new home in Davidson, an older white woman with a child in a stroller stopped, waited for us to come back outside from inside the house, and barked at us without so much as a simple hello, moving out or moving in. I have control over when my class does and doesn't meet, but in class, my job becomes harder for I had a professor say that she could tell English wasn't my first language from my essay. A black man walked into our campus office. Another student worker greeted him and said, are you the new football coach? You could see on his face he just wanted to sigh. He said, no, I'm a new professor. Today, we were made aware of our hypervisibility and undesirability. We are here to put the microscope to the microphone with our podcast. So let's talk about microaggressions. The term microaggressions was first coined by African-American psychiatrist and Harvard professor Chester Middlebrook Pierce, who defined microaggressions as a subtle, standing, and often automatic and nonverbal put-downs directed towards people of color, often unconsciously. According to Daryl Wing Sue and Lisa Beth Sponierman in the 2020 second edition of their book, Microaggressions in Everyday Life, while early theorizing focused solely on racial microaggressions, they can be expressed toward any marginalized group member and are typically linked to racism, sexism, genderism, heterosexism, classism, and ableism. The study of microaggressions has expanded recently to include other forms of oppression and accompanying microaggressions such as trans, queer, religious, and intersectional microaggressions. Micro refers to the interpersonal, micro-level context of the act, and aggressions refers to the insults, invalidations, and assaults that may manifest as verbal or nonverbal behaviors that cause indirect, social, and relational forms of harm, such as exclusion with or without intentions to do so. I once overheard a conversation in which a white man wondered aloud about the role and place of white men in academia as the future unfolds. I thought to myself, seriously? You are not a minority or an endangered species. You are not outnumbered or even close to being outnumbered. You still make upwards of 70% of the professoriate. Not only that, but whiteness is embedded in our systems and institutions. It's so normalized that you don't even see it. Microaggressions are verbal and nonverbal interpersonal exchanges in which a perpetrator causes harm to a target, whether intended or unintended. These brief and commonplace indignities communicate hostile, derogatory, and negative slights to the target. Microaggressions value the target's perception and identifying harm, as perpetrators often are unaware that they've engaged in an exchange that demeans the target. Impact over intentions. So let's get started. My name is Ren Healy. I'm a member of the class of 2023. And I became interested in the issue of anonymous grading through my involvement on Student Government's Academics Committee. On the committee, I had the opportunity to team up with Julia Bauer to co-author a post for the Davidson Microaggressions Project on the merits and the logistics of anonymous grading. And then following up on the post, our team has reached out to a few professors at Davidson who practice anonymous grading already in hopes that they could share some more personal reflections on the topic. Many have obliged us at this point and made themselves available, including our two guests today, 
And at that, I will pass things over to my friend, Julia Lau, to introduce herself and our two guests. Hello, my name is Julia Lau. I'm a rising sophomore at Davidson, and I am a member of the Davidson Microaggressions Project. Today, Ren and I will be interviewing Professor Maseka and Professor Andrew Ogene from the Political Science Department. Thank you so much for joining our conversation today. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. Fantastic. So to kick things off, I think it would be helpful if you all would be willing to share a bit of background on the content and the structure of the courses you teach and how these classes relate to your research interests. Research interests in the classroom dynamic vary by class. I teach a variety of classes at Davidson, and the way I conduct those classes depends to a large extent on the specific course. But by and large, I rely on a mix of lecturing interspersed with discussions, very intense discussions. That tends to work quite well, especially in the larger classes. To break that, I go with discussions. In smaller classes like seminars, it's all discussion-based. So as I said at the beginning, it depends on the classes, but I like to mix things up. My response is pretty similar, actually. We teach a variety of classes, different subject matter, different types of classes, different classroom dynamics lend themselves to different approaches in the classroom. So like Professor Seka said in the seminar, when we have 10 or 12 students, you know, we can have a lengthy discussion that really doesn't involve us as much. It's more of sort of directing the students in their conversation about the text or whatever it is that we're talking about in classes that are maybe a little more technical, like a stats class, we're going to maybe do a little bit more lecturing, but although we've actually incorporated quite a bit of quasi-flipped classroom stuff in the methods course in our department. So a lot of hands-on stuff in class, and then a lot of sort of reading and, and watching videos and stuff outside of class as well. And then I teach my classes just by virtue of subject matter. My interests are in American politics and the court system in the U.S. So I teach law-related courses. So I have two classes in constitutional law that are very much and they're not really Socratic necessarily, so I don't really cold call people, but it is a lot of sort of asking and answering and working through text by presenting students with questions and having them sort of talk their way through an understanding of what the text means. So that's a very different type of class than my typical political science course. So they just run the gamut. Thank you both for sharing that with us. Now to go into depth about the topic that we are discussing today, when were you first introduced to anonymous grading? The first time I heard about the virtues of anonymous grading in a more systematic way was reading uh, Daniel Kahneman's Fast and Slow book. And in it, he has an honest reflection on his own grading and potential biases in his own grading and the hollow effect. That's the first time I encountered the hollow effect. It seemed to me a very persuasive analysis of the drawbacks of not doing anonymous grading. There are all sorts of biases that can creep in, a lot of it subconsciously. So anonymous grading has the advantage, I think, of removing a lot of the both conscious and subconscious biases if you are committed to it. First time was reading from Daniel Kahneman's book about it and then reading more about the topic later on and then fully adopting it in the most examinations that I do. I remember reading Kahneman's book as well and seeing that section of the book talking about anonymous grading. And I actually don't remember when I first started doing this. It seems to me that it's been something that I've done my entire career here at Davidson. I do have very vivid recollections of 
giving exams in green books in my first couple of years here before we started using Moodle and making sure that the students wrote their names on the inside cover of the green book and then folding it over and putting it in a stack so that I could grade them anonymously or as anonymous as possible and sort of working through stacks of papers and trying to keep them in order without seeing names. And so that was always a bit of a challenge. And so one of the things that Professor Sek and I have enjoyed about using technology is that it makes that process quite a bit easier. But I think my interest in anonymous grading was not as sophisticated maybe as Dr. Seca's. I think it just seemed like the fairest thing to do to me. That's kind of where I started. And then I think over time, as I read and sort of understood a little bit more about the psychology and how it can be much more fair in a sort of more technical sense, I developed some vocabulary and some language around sort of why it's important. And I think a better understanding of some of the psychological or cognitive mechanics that are happening. But it's something that I just came to intuitively and really with nothing more sophisticated than simply saying like, you know, it seems like I should probably hide their names <laughs> when I create them. So, yeah. Great. And you mentioned anonymity and exam booklets and through the use of technology. Would you mind expanding perhaps to both of you on exactly how you go about anonymous grading in your classes? The first year I was at Davidson, I did paper exams and when I would grade them, it was very unwieldy, I have to say, anonymously to grade them. You need to arrange and stack the blue books in a way that forces you to avoid looking at the names, and then you have to flip pages and move them around. I would use the whole width of my desk to make this happen, but it was very unwieldy, and it was not something that I, I particularly enjoyed doing. So when we moved to, a number of us did this, I think, more or less simultaneously. Dr. Rogine and myself were among the earlier of this technology, the Moodle-based examination at Davidson, it made the whole process of grading anonymously a lot easier. There is, in fact, a workaround that you need to figure out on Moodle, surprising that it is not a more prominently featured setting, but you can easily manipulate the settings. Importantly, I think it's not only anonymous grading, anonymous grading on its own has great advantages, but it is also grading rather than grading one student at a time. That, I think, has its own advantages because it's cognitively easier on the faculty member grading. And then secondly, you are evaluating students on one question. So it seems to me it's a fair way of grading instead of going through an entire exam and then trying to remember what was the basis on which you evaluated a student on a particular question. So going online has been a great facilitator for adopting anonymous grading more seriously in my classes. Yeah, exactly the same. So I think Professor Seck and I came to using Moodle for our exams and grading anonymously around the same time. I remember having a lot of conversations with him about this. And I was the same way. I used to grade essay tests one question at a time and try and do it anonymously. And so I have you know, question one stacked up and question two stacked up. And it just got to the point where it wasn't making a lot of sense, especially if there's alternatives that make it quite a bit easier. And so, yeah, I do the same thing in Moodle. I grade one question at a time all the way through the entire class without seeing anyone's name and then move on to the second question and do the same thing for exactly the same reasons, right? So we're obviously not seeing anyone's name, but we're also trying to make the evaluation of that particular question as consistent across the class as possible. We were wondering at some point, we became quite obviously big fans of the Moodle-based examination, and we were wondering whether that in some way affects student performance. And one of the most exciting research projects we did together is design an experiment within the confines of our methods course. We coordinated a study using 
student exams from both of our sections in the same semester. We coordinated the teaching of the course, stayed to the syllabus as closely as possible. The idea was to test whether there is a difference in performance between modal-based exams and paper-based exams. And ultimately, we found the students tended to perform significantly better when they took their exams on their computers using Moodle. So the advantages of online grading are manifold. So seems to aid or at least allow students to showcase the best of their knowledge, the most they know in an exam. And we think it is due to the ease of editing and writing more comprehensive answers during you. It sounds like you both have a pretty good method of grading anonymously on Moodle. So I'm just curious to know, have you encountered any practical challenges with the implementation of anonymous grading? I would say the biggest practical challenge is Moodle makes it difficult to do. <laughs> so we have figured out how to do that. And once you do it a couple of times, it becomes a lot easier. But for the new Moodle user or for someone who is maybe a little less comfortable sort of digging around through the menus in Moodle, it's not intuitive how to do that. And so it sets up this sort of psychological, I think, barrier for a lot of people where they're just like, I'd really like to do this, but I can't figure out how to make it work. And I don't want to ask somebody and I'm embarrassed or whatever. And so, you know, Dr. Sek and I have tried to show colleagues how to do this, but I think for most people, if they say to themselves, oh, I heard somebody grades anonymously in Moodle and they open up their exam, they would probably have a very difficult time figuring out how to make that work. That's really the biggest challenge is that there's this sort of artificial barrier that doesn't really need to be there. I second that. I've had the same experience. And after the first, second try, it becomes easier to figure it out. But on a more positive note, I think Davidson has some very good instructions nowadays for faculty members to work around this issue. So while the platform itself is not great, you could figure it out with a little bit of a time investment. It's not really that onerous. So that's the only technical challenge. It's not insurmountable, but it's there and it could be an impediment for those who are not as comfortable with technology or have not used this method of grading as extensively as we have. Another question, which may be somewhat difficult to answer, especially for Dr. Ogene, who has been anonymous grading, it sounds like, since he arrived at Davidson. Oh, well, I'm curious whether you've noticed any benefits from anonymous grading that directly relate to the reduction of bias. And I know that this is something that's clearly very hard to measure. And your research suggests that the Moodle platform provides a better chance for students to succeed, perhaps generally in assessments. But I was wondering if you could touch on this issue of bias specifically. One of the things that I noticed very quickly when I started grading anonymously was that I was almost always surprised at the end of a session of grading. So I was either surprised that someone did much better than I expected them to do, given my experience with them in class or other assignments that they had turned in, or someone always did worse than I, actually, usually it's both, right? One and the other. And for me, that is enough, right? If I'm perpetually surprised by the outcome, that's enough evidence to me that this is an effective tool because what that means is that I probably would have been pushing their grade in a specific way, either consciously or subconsciously. And so that's really been my experience and it still happens. So I think that's a testament to the effectiveness of this particular strategy. We know from replicated studies out, especially with the hollow effect, the biases reduce significantly. I am also surprised at times by the scores that students get, both negative and positive. I think that's another supporting evidence for the argument that there is probably a reduction in bias going on. But I think it's more than that. There are more subtle things that are happening whereby it works both on the instructor's end and the student end. On, on my end, I tell students that I sleep better 
knowing that I grade anonymously. And it does really make me feel a lot fairer when I grade anonymously. But perhaps more importantly, I think students respond very well to anonymous grading. I've never had anyone complain about it. Let's say they don't do so well in one exam and they prepare more or spend more time in a follow-up exam. They know that they'll have a very good chance of doing better and will not have the first exam weigh them down, which is what the hollow effect is about. So having that policy of grading, I think, pays dividends beyond the very narrowly defined and measurable way of reducing bias. Well, you have both mentioned how there are many benefits to grading anonymously and seem to really like it a lot. But have you had any experiences with students that have caused you to reconsider your implementation of anonymous grading? Or perhaps also validated your implementation of anonymous grading as well. I can't think of any experiences with students necessarily. So I think my experience is fairly similar to Professor Seika's. My students tend to be very appreciative of the fact that we grade anonymously. I think that they sort of, again, intuitively understand that it's the most fair way to go about doing this. And that creates, like Professor Seika was talking about, certain incentives for students. And so the only thing that I could possibly think of, and this isn't even a direct example, it's just something that popped into my head, is if a student really did poorly on like an exam that was at the end of the semester and it tanked their grade and they had done good work up until that point, right? You want to have some flexibility. And so the anonymous grading takes away some of that discretion. Anytime you are talking about, you know, taking away discretion as a means of reducing bias, you have to think about a balance between reducing that bias, which is an obvious good, but then also the loss of that discretion can also be potentially problematic, right? And so that has not really been a problem for me. I haven't run into that issue, but that's, you know, it's always something you think about when you're talking about varying levels of discretion. I have not had any experience that has made me reconsider anonymous grading. I just simply cannot think of one. And yeah, I'm planning on continuing with it. Me too. Glad to hear it. I guess taking a step back for the bigger picture, I'm curious if you all have any reflections on how anonymous grading as a specific practice relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion issues generally at Davidson. I think it does relate to a great extent. It relates in a very basic way by knowing that there are subconscious biases that tend to work against certain types of students whether it is marginalized students, first-generation students, and others. Second, and very importantly, I think it might be the case, this is just a hypothesis, I don't have uh, strong evidence, but it might be the case that, for example, first-generation students, when they come to Davidson, they don't do as well, or even within a semester, they don't do as well, and then later on, they catch up. If you let initial impressions cloud your judgment later on, I think that use bias and uh, will work to the detriment of those students and inhibit, of course, inclusion and diversity. So removing as much as possible, eliminating the bias, I think it is a very good way of fostering an inclusive and a diverse student body. And I think this works as a signaling tool as well to students. If you implement anonymous grading and you are explicit about the fact that there are biases, as hard as we try, they are almost impossible to fully account for. Hence, I am going to try my very best 
to ensure that those biases do not creep in in my grade. And here's one very conscious policy that I have adopted as a faculty member. With that very policy, I think you're indicating your commitment to reducing the bias. And even if you might have had very little bias in your own grading, because you don't know for sure how much there was to begin with, the fact that you are making it clear to your students that you're trying to do this to do the right thing. The only thing that I would like to add is that it is not a magic bullet here. It's one of many things that we can do as faculty members to create inclusive classrooms and to make sure that students feel like they're not being unfairly or unduly penalized for whatever reason. And so I think it's probably one of the easiest things you can do. In fact, the computer does it for you, literally does it for you. And so I think we want to be a little careful not to sort of assign too much importance to this particular thing as a sort of solution to these problems. It's one of many solutions, but it is an easy thing for people to implement and it's incredibly effective for all the reasons we've been talking about, but it has to be part of a larger strategy that includes other things in the classroom and beyond. Other ways in which we could be biased and other ways in which people don't feel included and appreciated, so this is not the fix. I think that's important. Since we're focusing exclusively on anonymous grading, we might give the impression that this is the solution to all the problems of inclusivity. So thank you, Dr. Eugene, for making that clear. It's obviously not the end of it all. It is a step in the right direction. So related to the previous question, could you talk about how conversations among faculty on campus have evolved regarding the importance of inclusive teaching practices? Coming up on my 10th year at Davidson, and I can say that for at least half that time, those words were never uttered. <laughs> not to my ears, at least. I'm sure people were talking about them, but certainly not to the extent that they're talked about now. It's not the only thing that people talk about when they talk about teaching at Davidson, but it has become a very, very regular part of our discussions about how we structure our courses, how we think about the student experience in our courses, not only in a sort of public official sense when we hear from the administration and we talk in sort of official circles, but even, even when we talk amongst ourselves, I think that the language around inclusivity and around bias reduction and around diversity has become so much more sophisticated in my time at Davidson and so much more prevalent in terms of sort of centering our discussions around those particular issues. So it's central to how we talk about teaching. But that hasn't always necessarily been the case, obviously. I just finished my sixth year here, so it's pretty much been present since day one for me at Davidson. So I cannot speak about the period before that, but since then, serious efforts by a number of faculty members and the institution itself to foster these initiatives, to foster more inclusivity. And the more people are learning about the ways in which you can do it, there is more training available, more seminars, increasingly more, even in my six years here. I think there is a commitment to doing it. We don't know how effective it is yet. And that's the part where I'm oftentimes wondering how effective are these measures at Davidson specifically? How well are we doing? The evidence is pretty scattered. And we don't have a study that would look at across all departments across and I would be very interested to know what are the things that work best at Davidson and presumably elsewhere as well. But it's a learning process and it seems to me that the institution is investing more and more on this very important issue. Yeah. And that's not to say that there's not, you know, skepticism and resistance to these sorts of things still in place, but that's becoming less true as we move forward. One of the things, just as a quick anecdote, Professor Sek and I a few years ago went to a teaching and learning conference for political science. 
and part of the conference was about inclusive teaching and inclusivity in the classroom. And I remember being struck by some of the conversations that we heard among our colleagues about the difficulties that they faced implementing some of these changes, not only just in their classrooms, but sort of trying to push for institutional support for the kind of things that they were trying to do. And I just remember looking over at Professor Seca and saying like, we're getting reimbursed for being here and our dean and our administration is really pushing us to sort of get better at this. And our colleagues at, at other schools are having to fight tooth and nail to get support from their departments and from their administrators. And so Davidson has, you know, I wouldn't say that we've done a perfect job at doing this, but we've done well relative to many of our higher ed institutional peers. And it's important to, I think, keep that sort of wider context in mind for all the challenges that we have at Davidson. We're part of a larger group of schools in higher ed that all have these challenges and are all dealing with them in different ways, some better, some worse. That seems like a great place to conclude things. I don't know, Julia, if you have anything else to add, please do so. And if you all have any other comments, feel free to share. But this has just been so special. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us, and we appreciate it. Thank you for doing this, and thank you for that great op-ed. I think it was it was very well written. The reason I mentioned it is it seemed from the social media reactions, especially by our colleagues, some of our colleagues, it seemed that this was the first time a number of people were hearing about anonymous grading and the benefits of it. So you're doing service to all of us. You're educating us all on how to do our jobs better, which is great, and keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the DMP podcast. Check out our website at www.davidsonmicroaggressionsproject.org and follow us on social media. Find us on Instagram at DC Microaggressions, on Twitter at DMP underscore Davidson, and follow our Facebook page, Davidson Microaggressions Project.